0: Hey everyone, welcome to Praise Dionysus. Praise him. Ah, hey, it's me, it's just Jake. Um, yeah, it's the second one of these in a row. I hope you're not furious at that news. Um, yeah, James is still in a convent, um, pretending not to be pregnant. Um, that's what we're telling the neighborhood children, but, but you know the truth. Uh, this, this, this time, we're, we're gonna try for five again. And like last time, if I don't make it, um, I will just apologize at the end instead of changing this introduction, (laughs) but, uh, it's still fringe. If you're listening to this in, I don't know, something like real time, if you're listening to this live somehow in my wall, um, then, then I hope your fringe is going well. I hope you're seeing things and having like a, like a stimulating time. Um, because I certainly am doing that. Um, and I, I, I wish, wish the same for you. Um, but wherever you are, whatever time it is, I hope you're having a nice day. Uh, so yeah, so Today, on this episode with you and me, I'll be talking about Paradise Lots by Pony Cam, A Few Things That Happened on the Way to Now by Sophie McRae, Haha ha, Fair Enough by Ivana Brejas and India Alessandra, Disco Pigs by Ender Walsh, and Half Steam Ahead by Con uh, Yeah, please stick around. I think it'll be a cool, cozy time. Um, thanks for coming. I am realising now that that policy that I just instigated and instigated last time too doesn't make a whole bunch of sense in terms of trying to make you feel like you can in any way trust what I say. Because what? I'm gonna lure you in with a promise of like particular structure and content and then just if I can't get to the end, I won't do it. <laughs> I think I have more stamina than that and I think you're you're worth the effort. So um, anyway, uh, yeah, disregard me, I'm just an idiot. How are you going? Um, I'm fine. Uh, yeah. I'm doing alright. Um, I wish I had a more dynamic answer. Good. I feel like the insides of my, like, I don't know, my inner world is looking different these days. All of, like, seeing this much theatre is really fucking with my, like, inner flora and fauna, I think. And not in a gut health way. Um, you're gross for thinking that. I just, just in the way of, like, um, stop thinking about your digestive system in the way of like seeing this many people's faces tell stories in a row. It's just, it's like, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very welcome burden. Um, it's not even a burden. It's just, it's a very welcome style of overwhelm to be undertaking, like of all the things to be cursed with. Um, having to see too much theater is, is one of the better curses. Um, and it's not even too much theater. Like that's even the wrong language. It's just more theater than I'm used to having to take in at such a rate because of, you know, society being broken. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, but it's like, you you know, you can't just like immediately be amazing at running a marathon. You have to do whatever is necessary to become a marathon runner. I'm not a runner. Um, Don't hold that against me. Um, But yeah, it's been a great time so far. Not even over yet. It's not even goddamn over. (laughs) Um, Anyway, what else has happened? Literally, it's just been seeing theatre. It's literally heaven, though. Like, it's just... (laughs) It's what a dream lifestyle. All I've been doing for the last little while is just, like, sitting in the dark, um, and then quack quack, and then just intermittently messaging Sebastiano about going to the (laughs) theatre. That's that's all my life is. Sorry, I've got Sebastiano on the brain. He just messaged me about a show that he just saw that he wasn't blown away with. (laughs) But, but, that's, that's a conversation he and I will have in private, um... Because that's how close we are. I'm um, sorry to keep talking about him. Um, What else? I, I'll i get past this because, I, as I said, I'm about to talk to you in detail about all the theatre that I've been seeing. So I don't need to give you like this little like extract of the essay. That's not what it's called. What's the thing called? Where it's like, if you, do, if you don't want to read the whole journal article, you can just read that annoying, I don't know why I'm pretending it's annoying, that very <laughs> informative and nicely length introduction to the journal article that can be like, Oh, hi, don't even bother reading this entire thing. What we found is that wine actually causes your unborn child to grow wings, so do it. Drink that wine, you pregnant genius. Um, I don't want to dwell on this topic for too long because then I'll have to start talking about that fetal alcohol syndrome. If you can't tell, I'm pretty overwhelmed mentally at the moment, (laughs) but, but that will not bleed into the rest of this episode. Um, and don't drink while you're pregnant. Again, I'm not a doctor, even though I hide it very well. I'm going to give this last little chunk of time a star rating out of five, and I'm going to go with 28, which is a number I came up with because I just looked across at my bed. Um, don't get excited, and I saw this, like, new, like, soft bedspread thing that I purchased because I made the idiotic decision of going to Big W again, which is a place I keep ending up, and I need to stop doing it because all I do is just buy a bunch of well-priced towels and then something stupid, and this, like, today's stupid addition to my goddamn life is one of those, yeah, like, shimmery, soft, like, fleecy bedspread things because... I don't know, I was in, you know, when you're like, you go to the supermarket when you're hungry and you just buy all of these like confusing breads. Um, Well, this is the big W version where if you go to big W and you just feel like, for some reason you just want to feel snuggly and cozy for, I don't know why, but I felt that way. And then I locked eyes with this, this soft gray fleecy bedspread and I took it home. Um, And that's my atrocious story about shopping. Let's start talking about theater. (laughs) Hey there, so I went to see Paradise Lots. I went with Harry, um, which is irrelevant, not just because you probably don't know who Harry is, but also because we were separated for the entire experience. So, which was fine. I desperately attempted to make eye contact friendships with a number of other people that were in the audience of this participatory immersive adventure. And that was not really a success, but (laughs) that's that on that. Um, Full disclosure, I am, a big fan of Ponycam and their work and also of the members of it. Um Dominic Weintrobe is one of the greatest men I've ever known, and he is in it along with you know, the rest of them. They're a really great bunch of people, um, and their work is really interesting and strange. Um, just getting that housekeeping out of the way. <laughs> um, yeah, so Paradise Lots. So we rock up um Will, one of the like uh of the Ponycam members is there to greet the cluster of us audience members of which there's I'd say like about 15 of us um and yeah he sort of like gives us the rundown on what's gonna happen um uh just in terms of like you're about like you're about to go through, some, through something, it's very clear that it's going to be happening in the car park behind him uh, and that this, there's a safe word, which um, I was grateful for. I did not plan on using it because I, 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 I don't know, even if I felt like I needed to use it, I wouldn't want to be bothersome or disruptive. But that is on me. <laughs> uh, that's, that's absolutely on me. And if um, something terrible had happened to me that I had felt uncomfortable throughout, uh, it would have been my cowardice and social anxiety keeping me in that situation and not <laughs> this fine company don't know why I felt the need to say that. (laughs) Anyway, so we went in and then sort of gradually we got to this like boom gate thing that was the access to the car park and it was being manned by these children. And I think now I'm going to flag a thing that I'm going to keep coming back to and repeating in that um, children are terrifying. And like not all children, but children when they enter into like a high school age bracket, which this cast appeared to belong to, anyone between 13 and 17 is terrifying to me. (laughs) Um, probably not in isolation. I guess I'm not often encountering 16 year olds in isolation. Um, because to do that, I think I'd have to be setting traps in a cornfield, but I, yeah, but standing with this cluster of strangers facing these teens who, as, as far as like what the scene aesthetically seemed like, it seemed like they had somehow taken over um, this car park in a way akin to what I think the movie The Warriors is about. All my experience of The Warriors is, is getting pretty into the PlayStation game when I was the correct age and internalized, like, taste for violence of, um, of a child that I was at some point. But I don't know, they'd somehow, I don't know, overthrown the, the car park government and it was theirs now. And we were there to see how their little world worked. Um, uh, in a way. <laughs> it was very much a structured event. It wasn't us just walking in and being, I don't know, talking to an untouched tribe. It was very much a thing that was about to happen. Uh, yeah, we got gradually welcomed past this boom gate. <laughs> one of the kids next to the boom gate was pretending to smoke with an invisible cigarette. And it's one of my favorite things about this entire piece. <laughs> Um, yeah, we get filed in gradually and then we're instructed, like, wordlessly uh, instructed to sit on milk crates and wait for the show to begin, which it does eventually with Louis, one of the cast members, Louis Kemp Makita, coming down a staircase and then singing Rock Lobster, uh, which of course is fantastic, as fantastic as it sounds. Um, bear in mind, I am still frightened during this. (laughs) Um, I guess I'll say, in like the, I saw it a few days ago and... I definitely realized, um, in kind of like, I, I think immediately after watching it, but then definitely I could kind of worked out that in the following days, the place where this show exists in my mind and my memory is definitely in the library of where fearful experiences lives and not in the place where theater normally gets filed away. You know, normally it's in like the theater, sort of like, like slash emotion category of memory filing. But this went straight into the fear hole, <laughs> um, which is just interesting. That's that's not often a place I get to plonk my theatrical experiences. Very gratefully, I'd say. Um, I'm not upset that I was frightened. Um, and I, I, again, I, it's largely my fault that I was as frightened as I was. But yeah, I spent this show very anxious and afraid. <laughs> so there's a Rocker Lobster dance number, there's a pelting with water balloons at Louis and then the show kind of begins. And then we get led into this separate room in the car park. We get cardboard boxes put in our heads. I feel very kidnapped. Um, one of the kids who pulls the box off my head, or only one kid does this. Is calling someone a kid rude? I d- it's an adult. No, it's not. Why am I <laughs> so afraid of offending a child by referring to them as a child that I would incorrectly term them as an adult? A cast member takes the box off my head eventually um, after, you know, unknowingly letting me go into a fearful mental tailspin while encased in this head helmet box. Um, And then I don't know if it's because of the look on my face or because this was just like a, a glimpse of compassion in this terrifying child planet... But, uh, they looked at me and asked if I was okay with a real, like a nice level of concern because I'm not super certain that I was, but then continued on trekking through and more things happened. I won't ruin it because this seems like the sort of show that it it has come back in previous iterations is that's a poorly assigned tense to that sentence, but it's existed before in different forms and may exist again. And so I'm not going to spoil anything that, that then proceeded to happen, um, but it was a cool, stressful adventure for me. If I were a differently mentally structured person, it would have been a type of fun. Sorry to talk like a robot, but I, I don't understand people that enjoy these works in a way of like, hee hee I'm more of a, oh, <laughs> this is theatre kind of person. But But some people, and people that were in the audience were like, oh, what a playful, gleeful time I'm having. And I am not from the same... Places them <laughs> in, t- in terms of our upbringings, I'd say. Uh, but yeah, throughout the whole thing, uh, they, they, the children, which I'm not rudely calling them, um, because statistically that's what they are. Stop being so weird about it. Uh, they, they were really mean <laughs> in an efficient cold way that you'd have to be if you wanted to run, uh, uh, I don't know. Maybe you wouldn't have to be cruel. Maybe, Should I quote Animal Farm? I'm joking, of course. It's just where my mind went because of, because of year nine. But, um, year 10, Mr. Ryan, he was bad at teaching English. Um, but, um, but they were really mean, (laughs) but they had to be, and it was part of the art and a super valid part of the art, because I don't know if art is supposed to elicit emotion in a person, it certainly managed to, you know, poke me in the... Oh God, children can be scary sometimes. And when talking about child performers before, I don't know if I've said it here, but I've definitely said it to other people, is like children in life and in theatre like this. So maybe it's more about in life because this theatre is very unique. In life, they're scary because I think, and I think it's, in my mind, my current hypothesis for myself navigating these things is that when you see someone that is like navigating their life outside of what you've decided is the correct rule set by which to live in current day society, especially in terms of like breaking social rules. Um, children are especially terrifying because they also <laughs> kind of have the thing of like, they didn't choose the rules of the world that they are forced to live in. And therefore they kind of are very, a, like, I don't know, it makes a lot of sense of them to be resentful of the rules that exist. And as with anyone who operates outside of those rules, that's very scary other versions of those sorts of rule breakages could just be frustrating, or you could find someone rude, or you could uh, find, uh, find just being near them on a tram kind of taxing, or, you know, you're scared that they'll say something weird or hurtful to you. Because again, you see them living outside of what the rules are, but children are frightening (laughs) is, is the thing you should take away from this conversation. Um, but their cruelty though, and that's the thing, this, this company is very good and these performers are really great. Um, and I'm certain that built into this experience was, was part of what my final moments within Paradise Lots was, um, which was this really lovely experience of like, after sort of like the chaos of the final moments, you then end up sort of face to face with this lovely performer from the show who offers you like a soy hot chocolate and a lot of smiles and kindness. And it just hit very sweetly. And, um, in the sense of like having to <laughs> kind of like spiritually broken by what felt almost like a terrorist training camp uh, to then at the end of this ordeal to be face to face with just like this like lovely sweet face that wants you to be okay. It just felt very much like, I don't know, like a, a warm hug after walking for an hour in the rain or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, but it was, and, and and that that moment I'd say, um, without analyzing it too much, it made the rest of the agony worth it because that moment was all the better for it. Um, it's what I'm going to say. And then later on determine whether or not I fully believe and agree with what I just said to you. <laughs> um, but yeah, but as always, Ponycam continues to be very impressive and strange. And yeah, thank God for that. Uh, and Dionysus, praise Dionysus, praise him. So I went to see a play called A Few Things That Happened On The Way To Now by Sophie McRae, um, and it was directed by Gaydon Sousa. Um, Sidebar, you do have to form an opinion on how you feel about sentences as titles, um, because I, I want to talk to you about it. You, the person listening to this is who I'm talking to, hi. Um, Yeah, make a choice. But yeah, a few things that happened on the way to now, which is a title I like, it's a nice title. Um, Before I went and saw it, I saw it with beautiful British Johnny. Before we went in, we went to, so the show itself was at the Queen Victoria Women's Center, which is such a nice building. Before that, we went to a Greek restaurant across the street from it and the inside of it like, very much reminded me of Mamma Mia 2, and to a lesser extent Mamma Mia, just because let's always spend more time talking about the second one. But, um, so I, for that reason alone, I highly recommend, like, recommend it. We got, like, the anti-pastor board. Uh, let me know how it goes. Get back to me on those two issues, please. But yeah, so we went to the Queen Victoria Women's Centre, which exists, so if you weren't aware of that, um, open your eyes, um, it's right there. Uh, And then we went inside, um, beautiful hallways, beautiful doors, went in and then right into Amelia. Amelia was there, so now there were three of us, which was a beautiful little triquetra. And yeah, then we eventually went into an elevator with a bunch of randos. And then we went to the very top of the building and then we came out of the elevator. And then we'll be in the room where the play was going to happen. A room that was like (laughs) so odd and stunning and strange. It was really lovely there. So it was like a room that was on top of the building. um, And the sort of, we're looking forwards at where the performance itself is going to happen. And that itself, is just kind of like a patch of floor that is in front of the flat seating collection of chairs. And then the three walls surrounding the performance space are just like windows that look out onto the encircling like fake grass balcony and walls of the balcony that then overlook the city. And it was like raining. So the windows themselves were like fogging up with that weird rain fog. Um, I don't know, you know what it is, but the the sort where if like, if you lean against the window, it leaves an imprint of your body on it. Whatever that is. Is that what condensation is? There's no way of me finding that out. Um, I should know that for sure. I watched that raindrop educational play. why didn't they make this clearer? Uh, yeah, I don't know. But that, that was happening, which was pretty magical. Like it, and not to, you know, not to jump to something that I feel like I should be saying about the play after having explained it to you, but watching the play in that context, like that, that just that context of like the space itself, not feeling like especially theatrical, you know, just in that one way of being able to look out and see like the real life city moving around outside and, and seeing the rain. Um, and, you know, and there not being a lot of like transformation of space, you know, and, and not having like the, the bland neutrality of a black box or anything like it. Like it really beautifully just turned the experience of the story that was getting told into something that was therefore also a reminder of like how little you need to tell a story in a really wonderful, engaging way. And because that too, I think that not to just sound like a, you know, I don't know, a warmly lit domino fall, but, um, and that then too, also just being like telling stories is like such a simple, wonderful thing that we do for each other and you don't need much to do it well. Um, and, and it, it felt so nice to be like, to be watching this story that literally had like the backdrop of just everyday Melbourne standing behind it. Um, really just highlighted how wonderful it is to get to spend any time in your day, hearing a story get told. You know, shut up, Jake, you lame bitch. <laughs> anyway, so a few things that happened on the way to now, uh by Sophie McRae, directed by Gideon Sousa. Is, <laughs> um it's a one-woman show that kind of conceptually takes place in the few minutes that it takes for Sophie's character to get the result of the pregnancy test that she's just taken and she's sort of sitting there in her house with wine and waiting for this result to come through and it kind of charts the thoughts that she you know like, the the thoughts I suppose, but even like with it being kind of in this like concepty time world, um, it's not the thoughts that she's literally having. Is this needless detail to go into? I don't know. It's a, it, it's kinda like a this beautiful meander through the cauldron of concerns that are like, you know, imbubulated by the fact of her having to wait for this pregnancy test to come through with potentially life-altering news. You know, was that a was that a clunky enough crappy synopsis for you on a piece of theater that is worth a better one? Yes. <laughs> yes, because yeah, this show was really moving and lovely. Something that it did really wonderfully in terms of it in terms of even just like even regardless of what the content was and regardless of the subject matter, something that it did as a piece of theater Um, And as a piece of, like, one-person monologue theatre that I've seen plenty of shows struggle to do or fail to do, and I feel like the more effective ones, I'd say, always manage to accomplish this thing of knowing the purpose of what they're saying in terms of, like, what's elicited this monologue from this person you know, like what, what is the reason? And it, it, it the best of times it's something beyond like, I'm going to tell a story to this sort of like collection of people in front of me. Um, uh, because it, it needs some sort of propulsion. Um, and, and what was great about, about this piece was that propulsion super duper existed. Um, and you know, and I think th- at the best of times it's, answering a question. Um, I think I often come back to that thing that Anne Bogart says about when you enter into a process, um, you should be attempting to answer a question, whether or not you find that answer, but it's like trying to answer that question should be present in what the work ends up being. Um, and I think for that reason, I think that when these sorts of shows work best is when it is in pursuit of some type of answer. Um, and yeah, what seems kind of present in the way that this story, um, took place and the way that these words spilled out in front of us, um, it was about Sophie trying to work out what she was gonna do and how she, and and more so like trying to, less what she was going to do and more why she was feeling the way that she was feeling. And there being this sudden urgency to kind of work out why she was feeling that way. And, and additionally, I suppose when it comes to sort of one performer shows being successful, it kind of also inserts a purpose for the audience existence as well as shows that I've seen recently have kind of struggled to do, not to sound cunty, but like just a couple of sort of recent ones have kind of strayed a little bit in that direction of like, okay, great. It's so good that you did this. Um, but what are we doing here? (laughs) That kind of thing of like, when you feel kind of redundant as an audience, just because of like, maybe they've gone on a specific journey or something. Um, as a performer or an actor or as a character or something, and now they have a bunch of stuff to say about it, but it's like, great. But then what, like good for you, but then what do we serve in terms of the function of this story or the purpose of your talking or your action? Um, what are we tasked with? Uh, and, and again, this show had that, you know, because it felt like we were almost, at least to me, it sort of felt we were almost like this stand-in observer of like, we kind of existed as that pressure on Sophie to sort out what it is that she was going through and kind of acted as these external figures to, I guess maybe we got to see in her face, the feeling of her answers to her kind of very personal questions, maybe not being good enough, you know, like her revelations had to withstand the critique of us, like the metaphorical us, which I thought was really cool. Um, yeah, uh, something else, um, that was really wonderful, um, was the fact that it kind (laughs) of like, there was something really similar to Sophie's character and Carrie Bradshaw from Sex in the City. Uh, which, um, partly they, they both have excellent hair and partly they both dress in a, somehow a similar way. Like she had these like wonderful, like pink corduroy pants on and there's like white top and it just had a very Bradshaw energy. I'm not a huge sex in the city person, but so for, for me to have made that connection feels, um... I don't know what it feels like. like Maybe that's why I couldn't get completely past it, you know, because it was like, oh, it's, it's odd for me to make an aesthetic sex in the city connection and my mind wouldn't let me move past it. But what I was grateful for in terms of this cerebral connection, whether or not it was intentionally implanted in the, (laughs) the aesthetic construction of this piece or not but having happened upon that connection, it was a touchstone that I could keep re- like returning to every now and then. And something that I'm glad that it made me interrogate was like part of what, and I know that especially with, and just like that, it certainly reignited a fire that I feel like never went out on people trying to understand what it is that is so resentable about Carrie Bradshaw as a character. And it, it sort of made me kind of grapple with that too. Like, especially after watching this show, like while I was watching it, I was listening to Sophie and uh, and the wonderful text and like, witnessing her excellent performance. But then in sort of like the hours and days following, I was like, okay, this Carrie Bradshaw thing, Jake, sit down and sort this out. Uh, and... And I think words that I came to that I thought kind of narrowed down what I found frustrating about Carrie Bradshaw as a person was the way that she weaponized her vulnerability is something that I've settled on. Like she's got plenty of other things that like <laughs> plenty of bad things that she did and ways that she let down her friends and the people that she was romantically entangled with. But I think something like an overarching issue that I maybe have with her as a character was the way that she managed to weaponize her vulnerability, which I think in a general sense is a pretty reprehensible thing to do. <laughs> um, and then it sort of like made me sort of compare and contrast, like, okay, I've found, because it wasn't just like an aesthetic similarity. It was like, there was something connecting Sophie and Carrie, um, beyond their outfits. Um, and again, it's like, and in light of sort of working out the, the words for part of what I find, like found irritating about Carrie, To then come back and work out what it was that maybe connects Sophie to her so distinctly was to kind of then kind of pick apart. Okay. I find Sophie really gripping and sympathetic and wonderful. And Carrie has all these faults. Um, and they both have faults. They're both human people, but why am I managing to side so fervently with Sophie in all of these matters and struggle to kind of come around to Carrie's way of thinking about things and supporting her behavior? Um, And I, of course, did like a scan for misogyny, which I feel like it's not that. (laughs) I don't think. (laughs) Um, but I think, um, I don't know. I think it sort of came down to their relationship with love, I think. And I know that's a very pathetic me conclusion to reach. (laughs) Um, but I think there's something in Carrie where she's very content to kind of mope around and um, be quite, I don't know, quite comfortable with kind of luxuriating in her victimhood, which I don't even know if I agree with that sentence, but for some reason that's what I'm driven to say. Um, But then for for some reason there's something in that family of characterization that is the key difference between her and Sophie in the way that Sophie looks at her experiences of love and romance and her romantic engagements with men. Um, with a... Yeah, to come back to vulnerability, like with a vulnerability that I find quite wildly respectable and kind of envious of and quite remarkable. Like, and I don't know how much autobiography has spilled into this text. or Yeah, I'm unsure of that. Um, but was it needless to draw this comparison to a Darren Star creation? Possibly. (laughs) Um, but all that is to say that, um, yeah, it was cool the way that Sophie, she said, I want something really wonderful. And I mentioned this, I think a couple of episodes ago, she said this wonderful line of, about falling in love and after having experienced love and having come to expect love to always end in doom and that to be a thing that we always enter into love expecting, the experience of falling into love that makes you think that it isn't always going to be doomed. <laughs> she had a very a much more eloquent, succinct, beautiful way of wording and saying that, um, which is a sentence that will stick with me for a while, I reckon. Um, the piece was, well being, um, you know, you often find with these, like, one-person shows that they're very text heavy, um, which makes sense. And I'm never one to criticize anything for being te- being text heavy because I love text. I'm a slut for text. Um, but, um, but this, this certainly wasn't, this was, um, this was the sort of thing where it's like, uh, I really like th- Lauren Gunderson talks a little bit. She has spoken about the thing of like, um, storytelling, like theatrical storytelling being especially effective when you can use things so quite often, uh, use things that aren't text in order to show story and moments, uh, and, and this show was a real showcase of those kinds of moments, um, which I always really appreciate. I, I think it's really beautiful. Um, yeah. Um, but, and there was also this like, other <laughs> really memorable passage in the piece, um, with Sophie telling this sort of like little story about looking at herself in the mirror. And turning the lights on and off and watching her pupils get bigger and smaller. And it was its just in those, like, few minutes surrounding, yeah, those sentences. It was nice to think about because I think that is a thing. Well, I'm sure that is a thing and I'm sure it's a thing you've experienced as well. But I think it's, it's so odd that we are all stuck in these bodies and we, like, they get us around and... We kind of have these fl- this fluctuating relationship with the-, the fact of this sort of, like, meat suit being the us that everyone sees of us. And then we have to use it to express who we are um, to whatever extent we're capable. I don't know. It's just anything that... And, you know, this moment felt universal, the one that she was describing um, and embodying felt universal. And I'm sure it is, but I guess I've never heard it put the way she put it. Um, But those moments where you're like, it it gets sort of like pulled into focus because of something that isn't your thoughts bringing the the focus there, but it's something about either seeing your body do something unexpected or um, even being felt looked at in a particular way or or being touched in a way you've never been touched before, or um, even even if it's not about your body, like even like sometimes I get like thrown by accidentally being thrown into like the, the, the hole of realizing that I have a name and that's what people call me. Sorry if that's a dumb thing to say, but you know, it's like, <laughs> I don't know, you, you've had your name your whole life and a lot of people. Um, and then you <laughs> are forced to, you know, come to terms with that somehow, I don't know. Um, You know, you know, those, those seconds, yeah, to get back to the body thing, but uh, I don't know, really feeling the inhabitation of your body, um, and becoming acutely aware of some facet of that or of the whole of that, I don't know, is a special kind of human, I don't know, I don't want to say overwhelmed twice in the same evening, but a very human overwhelm. Um, yeah, this piece was really touching and cool. Um... I need to stop, I need to get out of this habit of just like getting to the end of these conversation bits and then just, you know, having two or three adjectives to throw at the end. So I won't do that. Um, I'll just mentally applaud and then move along. (laughs) Uh, So the other night I went to the, the butterfly club, which is where I have been spending so much of this festival very, very happily. Uh, and yeah, I had like an odd day, which I can't get into, but it eventuated in me attending the theater in a jumper that I purchased from Big W earlier in the day because I misjudged the weather. And then my phone died and I had to buy an iPod charger from the, like an iPhone charger from one of those like Easy Marts. Anyway, I can't get into it. Long story short, I had to unplug a hand dryer in order to charge my phone, but that's not important and barely an anecdote. Um, but yeah, I went to the theater because India, Alessandra and Ivana Brejas were putting on a show downstairs at the butterfly club. Uh, and I went with a man and we sat next to each other in the front row. Um, and yeah, that's, that's how it was. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So we sat there and then Ivana comes out. Uh, full disclosure, I have, I I met Ivana one time because she um, I don't know if she still does, but, um, works, it, it is a, is a writer on top of being like a, like a media style writer on top of being a tremendous artist, uh, and, and sat down with me and a few of the cast members of a show that I wrote, um, leopard print loincloth a little while ago. And she sat down with some of us and talked a bit about the process. Um, and it was such a wonderful time. It was super lovely. And she wrote this really like lovely piece about it. And it was like, <laughs> we all came out of it being like, Oh, what a, <laughs> what a, what an amazing little, uh, conversation. It was very like it felt warmly lit. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, so I went into this knowing that she was amazing and India was a full blown stranger to me. Um, but, uh, anyway, any friend of Ivana is a, is a friend of mine. But yeah, me and man were sitting in the darkness with the rest of the audience. The show began, and it began with Ivana coming out and saying that India was running late. And um, because of like the rain that was happening, because it was one of those like really wet days, again, I had to buy a jumper because I didn't know what the weather was going to do. But uh, yeah, so Ivana came out and was like apologizing and saying that India was like almost at at the theater ready to do the show um, with... India's then Hathaway-esque arrival. It was very clear that this was now a charade. I had fallen for it entirely because again of idiocy. I thought that she was actually running late uh, and that's my story about being stupid from the get-go. <laughs> um, let me just say this show was so like surprising and cool and um, I don't like saying cool because for the most part I resent it as a concept, but um, so I won't call this show that because I really liked this show. Uh, it it just, <laughs> it provide like it was, essentially like a series of sketches. Um, And yeah, these two wonderful performers did like wrote and did these sketches. And it was wonderful in the way that it left, it left it up to the audience to like a lot of the time work out what it is that was funny about what was happening. Like it gave you, which always feels so lovely when you're like left to your own devices in terms of sorting out the absurdity that's happening in front of you and you determining whether or not it's funny to you. And, and I just, you know, it's just that type of like, when you're left to connect the dots yourself, it adds a little level of satisfaction to the chuckle. (laughs) I think um, some, some interesting high points were, uh, they managed to interrogate the, what I feel is like one of the most sort of like comedically mined scenes from cinema. That being when Jack and Rose could have fit on the Titanic door and then Leonardo DiCaprio dies. that being a scene that has already been so rigorously plundered, they managed to find a new angle on the situation. Um, and anytime anyone wants to talk about the masterpiece that is Titanic, I am open to it. Um, but yeah, so it was nice to be by to be surprised by the comic stylings in terms of what they did with the work, um, with the, with the, with the piece. Um, That was cool. Ivana had some really wonderful, like, musical moments. Um, One of them being this, like, really excellent, like, three-minute piece that kind of, like, delved into what seems to be Ivana's personal experience, but the the very universal thing of, like, (laughs) to simplify it, it's kind of the thing of, like, really wanting a person and feeling lonely, but then also being repulsed by the idea of being close to a person uh, and and uh, watching them kind of, yeah, th- this song kind of like watching that seesaw teeter back and forth and, and it being such a somehow rather like a visceral, complex, really hilarious experience for, for, for me. <laughs> um, yeah, that was terrific. There was also like, I had never heard the song A Boy Named Sue before, it's been, insisted upon me before by, like, older people as being, like, a a staple of, like, honky-tonky country classics, uh, but I don't know, having been someone that's been often told that Jake the Peg is a song worth listening to for, like, obvious reasons, the reason, of course, being that I am a peg, that... Uh, this is a song that's also escaped me. I feel like Walk the Line got me into Johnny Cash. And then I feel like anything adjacent to Johnny Cash is just a variation on Johnny Cash. And watching that one biopic three times has made me completely well-versed in that entire genre of music. If, you, you, if you've if you got a question about the vague rock and rolly blues, throw it at me. Um, I'll talk to you about that and about Reese Witherspoon having brown hair. We can sit here for days if you want to. Um, but yeah, so that was a wonderful high point as well. Um, yeah, it was just largely... It was just super terrific to watch, again, a show that was so funny and so odd and so peculiar. And I know that's a synonym for odd, but I'm gonna go with peculiar, pretend I never said odd twice. Um, And again, part of what was wonderful about it was having spoken to the artists afterwards, India said this wonderful thing about it being derived of them wanting to make each other laugh, which is of course just a lovely, wholesome starting point. And then part of what, one of the many magical things about art existing in a festival like this is it being enough for you and a lot of the time, like at least one other person sort of looking at each other and being like, we both know that this is funny and therefore, and maybe it's not even about thinking that someone else might find it funny as well, but it's like, if we both think it's funny, that's one person signing off on this insanity and only insane people make art, I think. so. And a bunch of dull people who eventually stop because they burn out and then decide that they want to commit to business. But um, yeah, this is just a really, really wonderful, strange time and I'm looking forward to what they do next. Uh, And yeah, it's nice when like a sketch show can be really surprising. I think it's such an, uh, you know, the genre of comedy that it is kind of like, (laughs) in my mind, lends itself to an expectation of kind of like, moderate disappointment. And I know that's unfair. And I know that I may have just offended you and your sensibilities or your craft perhaps. Um, but I think, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like when I go into a sketch show, I expect to enjoy between 40 to 60% of it. And the rest of it, I expect to find charming, (laughs) but, oh, but, oh my God, but the, the, this show was littered with so many memorable, confusing, really, really funny moments. And yeah, it was a cool time. Oh my God, Jake, that's not how you end this. I will end it with a song. Okay, uh, so the other day I went to Disco Pigs Um, by Ender Walsh, directed by Gavin Roach. Um, It is called Disco Pigs, so let us therefore all take a moment to imagine pigs at a disco. Good, now you've pictured it good. Now dump that, because now we're talking about theatre, okay? (laughs) So um, the show itself starred Jonathan Schilling and Antoinette Davis. I... Know that I've seen Antoinette Davis be fantastic in something in the past. I looked into it and I could not find anywhere on her online available CVs, what it was that I saw her in. My lazy brain is like, was she in If Then? And I was like, I'm unsure. And then I started thinking about the plot of If Then, and then I got distracted. But all I know is that I, the moment I saw her, I was like, she's been mind blowing like before, and it's likely to happen again. It happened again. This cast was very, very talented. The energy was very, very high the entire time, which I appreciated. Here is where I need to say something else so they had okay so i was there with sebastiano just to talk about him yet again uh and he thank god he was there for a number of reasons but this specific reason is the one that i will relay to you now it was good for had to have sebastiano there because after the show we came out of it and then he could explain to me what accent it was he thinks it was irish i have no idea it was an accent so thick that oftentimes i could not understand what they were saying and it seemed like it was just littered with so much slang that it felt like a foreign language this is not a criticism, <laughs> this um, this is just me stating a fact, I suppose, I am unable to ingest that much maybe Irish at such a rapid pace, or maybe at all. Maybe if what they were saying had been done slowly with surtitles, I still would have struggled. It was very fun to watch them be so energetic. And I believe I got, having (laughs) asked a number of people afterwards, I believe I did understand the entirety of the plot. I definitely missed some nuance, but I'm sure that I know what the story arc was, which was essentially two people growing up in Ireland, question mark, and it, at the time of the like the storyline of the play, they are 17 for the most part, but they kind of give you a rundown of their upbringing together. And it's kind of one of those like lovely kind of parallel close friend, childhood friendships that then blossoms into a confusing adolescent thing. Um, and then some hijinks ensue. Let's call them low jinx because they're pretty dark, <laughs> quack quack, <laughs> um... Uh, yeah, but uh, essentially, (laughs) um, yeah, they're 17 and they want to go to a discotheque that they've heard positive things about. And along the way we come to realize that the, the man of the two of them kind of has this, they have this very intimate friendship. I believe at one point he dreams about having sex with her. And then throughout the piece, he has very clear violent tendencies, especially when it comes to people wanting to engage with her in a romantic or a sexual way, because he feels some level of territoriality towards her. Um, and then again, low jinx ensue. Um, Something that you can think about <laughs> among the several other things you can think about uh, is they, th- twice the question comes up of what color love is. What color do you think love is? I'm going to give you a couple of seconds to lock in your answer. Um, good. Have you got it in your head what color love is? Um, great. The answer they propose is blue. So... I don't know if you and Ender Walsh are on the same page with this one, but um, yeah, they went with blue. I remember thinking while I was watching the show that I was like, oh, I, but puce. But then I also realized I just enjoy saying puce and I've just guessed that it's kind of like a dusty pink color. I don't know what color puce is. Um, between this conversation and the next one, I'm gonna Google that and let you know what color puce is just to save your fingers from getting exhausted. Um, but again, it was like, it's so fun to be at the meat market. These two actors are really, really great. Like, again, really, really engaging energy. It's just nice to watch people like barrel through a text sometimes, you know, and just like do away with frills and slowness because I don't know. It's, uh... Maybe it's a thing of just like growing up around people learning to do theater. And and I'm certainly in the same boat of like, I think we all maybe have to either experience people learn this or learn it ourselves, that you believe that in order to show that you are thinking, you feel the need to implant a lot of pausing into pieces when you're performing, because the, you have that kind of like rather elementary belief that you need thinking time. Like you don't just have this tick like text ready to go in your noggin. Um, but then you look at people having real conversations and for the most part, it's just coming out of their mouths. Um, that's a fairly pedestrian thing to be discussing with you at the moment, but, um, it's a thing nonetheless. Um, I had to learn it and now you have to relearn it because I'm sure you already knew that. (laughs) Um, did you know that like on average, like a person takes in just like a regular conversation takes 800, what is it 800 milliseconds to respond and if they take like shorter or longer than that something's going on i'll just leave you with that um i'm going to yeah i'm going to going to google puce. um and we'll reconvene in just a moment Hi everyone. Um, are you ready? Puce is gross. Um, okay. So puce, first off the color itself, uh, it's like the most boring shade of pink you've ever seen. But if you look for more detail, which you shouldn't because it's disgusting, but I am going to burden you with it because I have to go through it and we can all learn something together. So what color is puce? Okay. Puce is an earthy pale pink that comes from mixing purple, pink, white, and brown. Okay. Obviously that's fine, but this is where it takes a turn. Okay. Its name comes from the French word for flea. The color is said to be the color of blood stains on linen or bed sheets even after being laundered from a flea's droppings or after a flea has been crushed. Okay, okay. So somewhere in my subconscious, I have decided that love is the color of flea blood stains on sheets. And we're just gonna file that away in things that we now know together, okay? I've also realized I had this sudden fear and then went back and checked and I've realized that I didn't explain, oh my God, and truly no one cares about this, (laughs) but I forgot to explain that it was 28 stars out of five because the price of the shimmery soft blanket was $28. What a bargain. Again, what a terrible story. Okay, let's talk about Half Steam Ahead by Konkudis. Again, it was at the Butterfly Club, different night, different time, different outfit. And um, yeah, it was downstairs, a space that I have really fallen in love with. Um, in terms of the theater spaces in Melbourne, downstairs at the Butterfly Club. I had like, I was indifferent to it and now in love. It's so nice down there. Um, Yeah, Concutus, Stranger. I'm gonna start with what will sound like hyperbole, but I truly mean this in a sincere way. Um, I, Concutus again, who I do not know, um, may truly have my favorite face, <laughs> uh, which I understand is a lame thing that sounds like an exaggeration. But the moment I saw it, and the more that I looked at it, I kind of realized that it's, it's it's it might be my favorite face. If you extract like remove any sentiment from this thought, obviously I like it when I look at the faces of people that I care about. Take that away. Imagine I got bonked on the head with a shovel, and I just have never met anybody. But I remember what I like, <laughs> and and yeah, and. Yeah, Konkutis has my favorite face. I'm going to move past this now. Um, it was a really, really funny time. It was really, really great. Um, yeah, it was like, kind of like, it was like sketch, I suppose. I'm not a comedy man. A sketch, I suppose, but everything was kind of woven together in the context of him getting on a cruise ship. Um, and then while sort of on the cruise ship, he had two sets as a comedian on the cruise ship that were really just Concutus doing good stand-up to us. Uh, which was, yeah, which I was super into. He's just like a funny person that I will continue to pay attention to because, um, yeah, I enjoyed that the way that he stands on stage and his physicality. And he had this like long extended like sections where he would do physical comedy junk with like a, like a sound. I I clearly don't know how to talk about the things that I'm trying to talk about. And I apologize for not not being more eloquent when it comes to me trying to discuss where stand up meets clowning. But there was like a soundtrack of him running through the city and, you know, shoving people and jumping on things and and honks and whatnot. And he physically engaged with this uh, very, very effectively. Um, yeah, I, he very cleverly disguised props that he needed as artwork on the wall, which I thought was an impressive, cool thing to be doing. Um, and what else? i just, I guess now after just like praising this man whom I'm a, like a big fan of, I think, um, I, I'm now gonna, now gonna just very briefly touch on this like phenomenon, I guess that this show like gave me a chance to interrogate somewhat was like, well, with it still being like a, a rather like full audience, it was like a quiet audience in terms of like, people were laughing the whole time, but it was like a soft giggly laugh. Um, and and he of course deserved more because again, um, this, this show was really, really great. Um, but uh, I had to think of then therefore getting to kind of like think about what it's like being in a quiet comedy audience. And I honestly think I prefer it. I think, <laughs> and maybe this comes to, down to some sort of like jaded audience experience, trauma thing. I don't know. Um, but I think I prefer it because somehow it feels more honest. I don't know. I certainly just, I I really, d- when it comes to like, you know, when you watch like a comedy special on like some sort of streaming service, there's something about it being in like the larger the arena that it's filmed in, I find the less that I tend to enjoy myself. And maybe that's a whole separate thing, but that's, that's just a ratio for you to be aware of. Uh, but something about being in like a quiet audience, irrespective of the number of people there, but just like an audience that is just kind of like reserved and attentive. I like it because it somehow feels like, and the best comparison I can think of is somehow it feels like you're, like you're sitting in a cafe by yourself and sort of reading a book, but then you can't pay attention to the book anymore because you're overhearing two people on like a first Tinder date or something. And you're hearing... (laughs) you're hearing one of them be really, really funny and delightful and the other person just not appreciating the goldmine they just happened upon. Like you swiped right on a really, really funny person and you're stupid and don't understand the genius of what they're saying. And I think uh, being in a quiet comedy audience, watching someone be as as impressive as Con was and is, I figure, (laughs) um, it feels like the sort of experience of that, of like, what are you doing on a date with her? you meant to be on a date with me. <laughs> um, I don't know why I'm breaking up a straight couple for, for this analogy, but I am. Um, but yeah, you meant to be on a date with me. That's yeah, that's how it feels. And I think it's a nice feeling because it's, it feels almost like you're, you're having a rather private experience. And I think some of my favorite theatrical comedic experiences, I suppose, are ones that feel especially lonesome in their, I, I, I don't know, like spiritual specificity in terms of when I, when I'm like touched by a work. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, I, I, I enjoyed spending this time with Con and his show and I'm looking forward to what happens next. (laughs) Oh, and I, I don't know how I will hear about your opinions about this sweet, sweet listener, but he uh, dove a little bit into working out whether or not the, you know, that joke that people make when people like, when someone drops a glass at a bar and someone yells taxi, um, and whether or not that's funny or not, um, which I think is interesting and we need to be talking about this more. Um, but I think my, my response, I suppose, um, there, there wasn't a chance for us to be spotlit and handed microphones to unpack it individually at the show. Smart move, I think, dramaturgically. Uh, I I, I guess I've never really thought of it as like, uh, I've never chuckled too hard at it, but, but I think, and this is not interesting, but I think it's nice that we have kind of like a thing that we've all kind of agreed is sort of funny that we do as a group. I think anything like that is sweet, I think. I think if I thought about this idea any harder, maybe I'd happen upon other examples that really nauseate me. But I think a thing that we all kind of agree is kind of funny is nice in the way that it unites people. And I think there's an additional charm to it when it takes place in somewhere like a bar that I'm still convinced should be a warm, inviting, saloony mug swinging kind of place, uh, I guess. But I don't know, maybe, maybe that's, maybe umpapa from Oliver has really just penetrated my brain to an, I don't know, irrevocable extent. Maybe that's what I'm learning. Um, anyway, I'm still no closer to getting on a cruise ship. My aunt keeps insisting it's a good time, but I'm still pretty tentative about it. Five shows. We did it, we did it again. No one believed in us, but you and me, we're here doing it. (laughs) Um, thank you so much for joining me for this one. Um, yeah, again, thank you. Yeah. You listening is, is a necessary component of this happening and this happening is fun. It's challenging and exhausting at the moment, but it's, but it's, um, again, it's, it's, it's a fun, Challenge to be exhausted by. Um, our next episode will have a return guest star, um, funky, wonderful co-host, Con- like Connor Dariol is coming back. <laughs> Connor Dariol, who you may have recently seen as the pianist in Underwire, or if you turned around during William Boyd is nice. He was clicky clacking all of the lighting buttons. Um, yeah, he's coming back for a second time on Praise Dionysus. Praise him. <laughs> uh, and and um, yeah, I'm excited for. uh, uh, to speak to him as always. Uh, and I hope you're excited to hear what he has to say. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much for being here with me. Uh, it's really, really sweet of you. And, um, as always, I may already disagree with everything that I just said and friends don't let friends become theater critics. Uh, I hope whatever day you're having, that it's super wonderful. Um, and I'll speak to you really soon.